it's been a great summer together. We've talked about dating. We've talked about marriage. We've talked about parenting. We've talked about singleness. We've talked about community and accountability. I mean, we've gone on and on about different human relationships, and maybe we've come away with some great tools on how to date well, how to be married well, maybe sometime when we have kids down the road, how to train up our children in the way they should go, or how we should relate to our parents as adults. And we have so many tools in the tool belt. And someday, maybe it's going to be next week, maybe it's going to be in 50 years, we're all going to stand before Christ at the Bayman judgment. And I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know what those interactions are going to be like, but I wonder if Jesus is going to ask us a question like this. Sam, tell me a little bit about your relationships with others. And I begin to wax eloquently about a dating relationship that walked in purity, that turned into a marriage that was very sacrificial and others focused, that led to having children that were raised up in the way they should go and and honoring our parents with respect. Go on and on about the accountability and the community that we have at church and all of these human relationships that are so important in my life. And I finally take a breath. I can imagine maybe Jesus would say something like, Sam, I think you're missing something. As we wrap up our series on relationships, we're going to talk about the most important relationship in our life, and that's Jesus himself. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Come on, Sam, that is so cliche. I mean, could you come up with something better to wrap up our series with? So predictable. I mean, we know Jesus is the most important person in our life, but like, do we really have to spend the next half an hour talking about that? <laughs> the answer is yes, we do. I'm convinced this is the most important message of the summer. I'm convinced that this might even be the most important message ever in young adults, because there's nothing better than knowing Jesus. You've heard me say that a thousand times, but I'm not convinced that we always believe that and live that. There's nothing better than knowing Jesus and growing in our relationship with him. We say that, but if Jesus was our lifeline, then why would you go to video games or alcohol or pornography to numb the pain after a a breakup? If Jesus is our Lord, then why do we go to other people for advice before we even go to him in a word of prayer? If Jesus is our hope, then why do we spend more time reading the news than we do reading scripture? If Jesus is our best friend, then why do we only talk to him on Sunday mornings or Monday nights, treating him like a functional, a casual acquaintance? The number one fix to a struggle with pornography is not radical measures and accountability. It's a real relationship with Jesus. The number one fix to a struggle with anxiety is not medication or therapy. It's a real relationship with Jesus. The number one fix for laziness and indifference is not a radical reading plan. It's a real relationship with Jesus. The best way to continue to walk through the COVID culture that we're in is not through masks or anti-mask. It's not through vaccines or vaccine protests. It's through a real relationship with Jesus. The number one fix for confusion, walking in the path that God desires for us, confusion about our future, is not a pros and cons list. It's not seeking out mentors. The number one fix is a real relationship with Jesus. Now, most of those things I just listed are good things. But how often do we settle for a good thing at the expense of of the best thing. 
of a relationship with Christ. My biggest desire for us as a young adult family is that Jesus becomes so real to us that we know him in such a deep way and a meaningful way that he transforms every single aspect of our life. That we don't just say there's nothing better than knowing Jesus, that we live and we believe that there's nothing better than knowing Jesus. So if you have your Bible or your phone, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3 tonight. I'd encourage you to turn there with me. This has to be one of the coolest texts in all of the New Testament, uh, where Paul's talking in Philippians chapter 3. We're just going to look at a couple verses there tonight. We'll be in Philippians 3. I'm going to start in verse 2. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version where Paul writes this. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Verse 2 kind of sets the foundation for the passage. Paul, Paul says, look out which is kind of a soft translation. It's the Greek word blepita. It's in second person imperative. Paul's saying, watch out, beware, stand your guard, watch out for the dogs. Now, when you and I hear the word dog, we think of Kiwi or Phoebe or Sonics or the other herd of dogs that came to the Unadol camp out. These dogs that wouldn't hurt a fly, right? That's not the picture in this text. Maybe we have a picture of the dogs on our Mexico mission trip when we're wandering through the streets of Puebla and there's like stray dogs, there's more stray dogs than people. That really wouldn't hurt us unless we approach them. That's not the picture in this text. The word dog or the title dog in an ancient context was like the worst of the worst title. Uh, Think of Revelation chapter 22. There's this list uh, that Jesus is condemning. And there's sorcerers and idolaters and sexually immoral and murderers and then the dogs, right? This is not a compliment. In this culture, a dog was ravenous and wild, destroying and eating anything in its path. That's the picture here. Maybe a better translation for us would be a a wolf. We don't have many timber wolves around here, but ravenous, eating anything that would come in its path. And in a kind of dramatic turn, the Jews often called the Gentiles dogs, not a compliment. But who is Paul calling the dogs? (laughs) The Jews. He's calling Jews dogs, the ones who are the evildoers. They look righteous on the outside, but these Judaizers, they're, they're really filled with evil. He says that third title, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And then he says, for we are the circumcision. Now, if we were reading this in Greek we would understand a little better what Paul's doing. So we'll just give a little bit of a Greek lesson. The Greek word for mutilate is katatome, and it's only used here in the entire New Testament. It's not used anywhere else. Paul is the only one to use it. But in the next verse, the word for circumcision is peritome. You can hear how those sound similar, katatome, peritome. That Paul is actually using a play on words He's accusing the the Judaizers to be mutilators in terms of circumcision. Now, to understand circumcision, we've got to understand the Old Testament. It was God's covenant with Abraham, the covenant with the people of Israel, kind of the external sign, the symbol that they were Jewish, part of the family. Now, in Jesus' day, and after Jesus ascended and resurrected, or resurrected and then ascended to heaven, there was this debate that for Gentiles, now you and I are Gentiles, non-Jewish people, Did we have to become Jewish 
Did we have to follow the rituals? Did we have to become circumcised in order to become a Christian? And these guys who were opposing Paul were saying, yeah, to follow Christ, you've got to become Jewish. And it's clear in scripture, Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius, then Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council, and the whole book of Galatians, that the Gentiles didn't have to become Jewish. They didn't have to follow the rituals. They didn't have to follow the dietary laws. Namely, they didn't have to follow circumcision in order to be saved, that God accepts all of us by faith in Christ, not by religious ritual. But these Judaizers, these opponents to Paul, these, these dogs, these evildoers, are spreading these lies saying, Gentiles, for you to believe in Jesus, for you to be a Christian, you've got to follow the rituals. You've got to be Christ followers, or you've got to be circumcised to be a Christ follower. And in kind of a graphic way, Paul is saying that those who are promoting circumcision, all they're doing is mutilating the flesh. It has no value. And there's verse 3. For we are the circumcision, those who trust in Christ by faith, who worship the Spirit of God and dwell by the Holy Spirit and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in our own accolades, in our own religious rituals, confidence in Christ that we can only worship when we seek to glorify Christ. That's what Paul is saying here at the beginning of this passage. Paul's clear in verse 3. It's faith in Christ that matters, not external circumcision. But to prove how wrong these Jews are, to these particular Jews, the Judaizers promoting circumcision, to demonstrate that they have things wrong, Paul goes on a little bit of a tangent in our next couple of verses. And he actually explains his own religious resume to try to prove that he even had more right to brag in the flesh than even the rest of these guys did. Look at verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he gives his resume. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as a law of Pharisee, as the zeal of persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul lists off his Jewish resume. He was the Jew of Jews. He was born into a Hebrew family, the tribe of Benjamin, a very prestigious family pedigree. He was circumcised on the eighth day, just like every good Jewish boy. But Paul wasn't a lazy, entitled millennial who had everything handed to him on a platter. He worked and dove into his studies, and he became a Pharisee following the law to a T. He studied under Gamaliel, the, the best of the best teachers, where basically his education was like the Harvard of Jerusalem. I mean, he was at the top of the top, the top of his class, as respected as any other scholar of his day. Paul had more reason to brag in his externals than any of those who were opposing him. But Paul says, it's not worth it. He's recounting his BC days, his before Christ days. Because Paul was a whitewashed tomb. On the outside, he, was, he, was, he looked holy, but on the inside, he was filled with death and decay. He needed heart transformation. But I wonder if you and I put together a, a spiritual resume, maybe a spiritual resume before we came to saving faith in Christ. I wonder what would be on that resume. Maybe here's a couple things. I was baptized as an infant. I was confirmed in eighth grade. I memorized a hundred verses in Awana. I graduated from Christian school, a Christian college. I never drank or smoked or had premarital sex. I never watched R-rated movies until I was an adult. 
I didn't curse. I didn't swear. How many of those would be on your list? For me, I was the church kid. Grew up in Christian school, memorizing Bible verses, following all the rules. From the outside, I looked like I had my act together, but that wasn't the case internally. My heart was filled with wickedness and evil and filth. I was a whitewashed tomb, thinking that God was somehow impressed by my religious behavior while not having any heart transformation. That's when God exposed the sin of my heart and invaded my life in the most painful way, exposing that wickedness and giving me the choice if I was going to follow Jesus or my sin. And that was the moment when I turned from that old way of life. The Holy Spirit invaded my heart and began that work of transformation one step at a time, beginning the journey of following Christ. Maybe some of you feel like your sin, maybe growing up, was internal. The good Christian kid on the outside. Maybe others, the sin was external. And everybody knew what was going on. Friends, either way, both of those paths lead to the same destination. They both lead to death. Our own resume is never good enough to impress Jesus for our salvation. And even after we have a relationship with Christ, I wonder how often that same sort of a mentality, uh, trying to impress Jesus with our spirituality, filters in through our, our mind. It might sound like this. I read my Bible today. Jesus must be happy with me. Or I made it to young adults for the third week in a row. God must be pleased with me. I even shared my faith with a coworker. I'm a model Christian. You know, I actually think the inverse is probably even more true. I haven't read my Bible all week. God must be disappointed in me. You know, it's been really hard for me to pray lately. God's not happy with me. I'm afraid of sharing the gospel. I'm a bad Christian. I think those thoughts are the enemy feeding our flesh, trying to get us to believe that we can somehow appease God by our own righteousness. God's approval of us is given. It's not earned. I don't believe that God's sitting in heaven on his throne, looking down at young adults, just waiting for us to open the Bible, just longing that we might read his word. I don't think that God's sitting in heaven with an attendance sheet checking off when we make it to church and when we don't. Why? Because when I don't read the Bible and when I don't make it to church, who's missing out? Not God. It's me. I'm the one that's missing out. And as Christians, our spiritual resume, they don't impress God. It's hard to even compare our spirituality, our obedience with God's holiness to try to wrap my mind around the, the gap. Imagine a, a kindergartner in their art class with one of our art teachers bragging on their stick person art while looking at a Picasso painting. Imagine the seven-year-old little guppies swim class with Abby at the YMCA bragging to Michael Phelps how fast they are. It'd be ridiculous. Imagine the seventh grade band student at Horace Mann just learning the trumpet three weeks in saying, I'm as good as Louis Armstrong. That'd be ridiculous. On our best days of obedience, we are so far separated from God's worst days, which don't even exist because God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can't even wrap our mind around an analogy of the separation between God's holiness and our 
holiness. We can't even arrive at an analogy. I think sometimes we take ourselves just a little bit too seriously, and guilt is a less than ideal motivation for us to motivate a real relationship with Christ. We need God's grace in our sanctification. We need God's grace in our salvation. That's the foundation. Are you trusting God as you grow in Him? Even more foundationally, have you trusted in Him or for yourself for your salvation? Here's the litmus test. A question, if you were to die and to stand before God tonight and He was to say, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? If your answer, the most common answer that I hear sounds like this, "Ah, I'm a pretty good person. If that's your answer, then you have a major self-awareness problem. You're not a good person, and neither am I. I think of what Paul wrote in Romans 3.20, For by the work of the law, no human being is justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. When we look at the law, it exposes the sinfulness of our heart. I mean, think of the Ten Commandments. When I read the Ten Commandments, I don't think, wow, I'm such a great person. And then you look at Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus re-clarifies the Ten Commandments and is diving into the heart of the issue and says, yeah, murder, yeah, when you hate a brother in your heart, that, that's murder. Oh, how about adultery? Yeah, when you lust after somebody, that's adultery. And when that's the standard, <laughs> we look at the Ten Commandments and we think, man, there's a lot of evil. There's a lot of wickedness in our hearts because God's law, it exposes our sin. It shows us how evil we are that if someone thinks that they can have a relationship with God by their own spiritual resume, they're grossly mistaken. There's no one righteous. Nobody understands. Nobody seeks after God. We're doomed and we're hopeless and we're broken. We need somebody else's resume. And that's where the greatest exchange in all of history comes in. Verse seven in our passage But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see what Paul does. He takes his own resume, his own filth, combined with his own accolades, his PhD in theology, his background, his training, his relationships, everything. He takes that and he throws that in the trash can and trades it all in for knowing Jesus. But see what he says. I count it all as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Another Greek lesson. The ESV was a little wimpy in translating the Greek word skubalos as rubbish. It means dung or excrement. So here's our young adults 2021 translation. (laughs) You're a little worried. Here's what Paul's saying. I count it all as crap compared to knowing Christ. Now, would I say that one way club, Kirsten? Probably not. But I think I can get away with that in young adults. It's a phrase we use. Ah, that's a load of crap. Ah, that's worth crap. We say that, right? That's what Paul is saying. He looks at his resume. He looks at his past. He looks at everything that preceded his conversion. He says, I'm counting all of that as worthless, as dung, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. Paul exchanges his life 
for Jesus' righteousness. Look again at verse 9. This is the, the crux of the passage. And being found in him, Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, because Paul's demonstrated that's impossible, but that which comes through faith in Christ. I think I'd prefer the translation through the faithfulness of Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Because Paul's making comparison that we don't get righteousness based on what we've done through the law, but we get righteousness that comes through the faithfulness of Christ because Jesus lived the perfect life in thought and attitude and action that we never could have dreamt of living. He lived a flawless life without any sin. He endured temptation all the way through and never gave in to sin. In his earthly life, Jesus was flawlessly faithful to fulfill every aspect of the law, something you and I could never even dream of doing for a single day. It's not a fair trade. We get Jesus' life and his righteousness, and he took our sin to the cross. The great exchange. Not a very good trade. When I think of a bad trade, Reminds me of maybe the most famous baseball player in history, the great Bambino, Babe Ruth. But early on in his career, in 1919, he'd taken the Red Sox to three World Series. They'd won all three. But they were only paying him $10,000 a year. And he was not very happy with the front office in Boston. And they decided they just weren't going to pay him. So what does Boston do? A really great move. They trade him to their rival, the New York Yankees, for $125,000. In today's money, that'd be about $1.6 million, which for an MLB player today is pocket change. And what happens after the trade? Well, Babe Ruth takes the Yankees to three World Series victories, hitting up to 60 home runs. Not 16, 6-0, 60 home runs in one season in 1927. And the Red Sox, well, they didn't win another World Series until... 2004, the curse of the great Bambino. And I'm pretty sure the Red Sox regretted making that trade every single day until 2004. That trade is fair compared to what happened at the cross. The great exchange. Jesus taking our sin and us taking Jesus' righteousness in that trade We are the winners, and Jesus is the loser. Taking our guilt and our shame and our filth, dying on the cross, forsaken by the Father, dying as a criminal on death row, Jesus took our scuba loss, and we get Jesus' righteousness. But don't hear me wrong, Jesus did not lose. The cross was the path to his victory. Think of Philippians 2. 8 through 11, just a chapter earlier. And being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God's highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The cross was the path to victory. And every single one of us must come to a point in our life where we make the trade, where we make the great exchange, and we do exactly what Paul did, taking our own resume, taking our own accomplishments, taking our righteousness, taking our our scubalas, and trading it in for Jesus' righteousness. This happens the moment that we believe in Jesus by faith, that he died for us, 
by turning away from our sin, by trusting in Christ. It's a decision each of us must make. Don't leave tonight with knowing, without knowing that you've embraced Christ for your salvation. Don't leave tonight with knowing, without knowing that you've made the trade. But when we believe in Christ for our salvation, we receive more than just forgiveness and reconciliation. We get Jesus. He's our greatest treasure. Yes, our sin has been forgiven. Our debt has been paid. Our shame has been erased. The guilt has evaporated. But our forgiveness is a path to the best and the most important relationship in our life. And that's with Jesus himself. It reminds me of a parable that Jesus used, a one-verse parable in Matthew 13, verse 44, where Jesus says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The, the picture makes sense. Because back in ancient times, they didn't have banks, they didn't have vaults, they didn't have safes. That when we had something valuable, if you had something valuable, you would dig a hole in the yard and you'd bury it. So here's a poor peasant farmer. We don't know how he found the treasure, but he did, he found it. And he discovers this, this thing, this, this treasure that he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that's worth 10 times more than everything he owns. But for him to get the treasure in the right way, he can't just steal it. He's got to buy the field that the treasure's in. But to buy the field, he's got to sell everything. He's got to sell his house. He's got to sell his mule. He's got to sell his chariot. He's got to sell his tools, everything. So he can buy the field. But there's one word in that, in that parable that gets me every time. In his joy. He goes and sells everything that he has and buys that field. Friends, there's something. Let me rephrase that. There's someone who's, that's worth selling everything in order to achieve. And that's Jesus. Someone who's worth more than anything that we could amass in this life. Because there's nothing better than knowing Jesus. He's the one who died for us. He's the one who loves us more than, than we could ever know. He's the one who desires to have a relationship with us. He's the only one that can take away our guilt and our shame and offer us forgiveness. He's the only one who's anxiously awaiting the day to return and come back and restore this world to the way that it's meant to be. How radical and amazing that the God of the universe desires to have a relationship with us through Christ. Amazing. And when Paul followed Christ, he gave up everything. His family, his friends, his occupation, his pedigree, his reputation, his financial security, his health, his safety, everything. Embracing Christ for Paul came at a giant cost. But what does he say in verse 8? Indeed, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing greatness, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. When Paul looked back at his conversion, when he looked back at his old life, he's saying, I would never go back. Jesus is better. There's nothing better than knowing Jesus. And that's our first principle tonight. If you're taking notes on your handout, you've been patient to get to the first principle. There's nothing better than savoring Jesus. There's nothing better than savoring Jesus. The word savor means to, to enjoy to know Jesus in a deep way. That's the word know in our passage, that we're saved from sin, we're saved into a relationship with Jesus himself. 
And this friendship, this relationship has the potential to be the deepest, most important, most valuable, most meaningful relationship that we have in our life. Is Jesus your best friend or is he more like a casual acquaintance or something in between? Knowing Jesus might take some work. It might take some intentionality. One of the best ways that we get to know Christ is by spending time in his word, spending time reading the gospels or reading a book like Romans, getting to know him, not just to check a box, not just to say, yes, I'm a good Christian. I did my chapter today. Instead, realizing that if we don't read scripture, we're missing out on the depth of relationship with Jesus. Jesus is always ready to to meet with us. He's always ready to engage with us. We're the ones that get to go to him. Relationships take work. We understand that in, in a human relationship. Think of a marriage. If a husband and a wife, over time, if they stop pursuing one another, they're going to go from spouses to functional, functional roommates over time. It's not a healthy marriage. In our relationship with Christ, it takes some work. It takes some intentionality. We get out of relationship what we put into it. And I'm afraid that some of us are satisfied with very minimal investment in our relationship with Christ. But it doesn't simply stop at knowing Jesus and spending time with him. Look at verse 10, where Paul writes this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. I think we forget about that P word sometimes, the word power, that when we know Christ, we also have access to an unparalleled power, That when we have a relationship with him, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity comes and lives inside of us. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is dwelling inside of us. That you have the power to say no to sin. You have the power to overcome temptation. We have the power to walk through even the darkest of valleys in our life because of the Holy Spirit. If we know Christ, we have the power. I think sometimes we tend to forget about that. And we get excited about power, right? But I don't think we get very excited about the next word. That I may share in his sufferings. That if we want to serve Jesus, we've got to be prepared to suffer like he did. That's our second principle. There's nothing better than serving Jesus. One of the best ways that we can know Jesus is by serving Jesus. But Jesus guaranteed that if we want to serve him, that suffering is going to follow. Think of what Jesus said to his disciples, that a servant is not greater than his master, that if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And Paul continually counted it a privilege to suffer on behalf of his Savior, not because Paul enjoyed suffering. but When Paul suffered, it connected him in an even deeper way with Christ, the one who suffered for him. But at the same time, Paul knew that his suffering was just temporal. It was not eternal. It was just here and now because our life is a vapor, but then it's gone. Paul said his sights on something far better, and that's verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, the first time I read that verse, I was kind of confused. I thought, if by any means possible, I might be resurrected? Like, Paul, are you confused that you might be resurrected? Doesn't that contradict everything else you say? You, you talk about this, this sure and, and certain hope in other of your letters, I think of Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I mean, now you're uncertain? No, Paul's not uncertain if he'll be resurrected. He's unsure of the how and the when. Because Paul wasn't sure if Jesus was going to come back before he died. Paul wasn't sure if he was going to die as a martyr. Paul wasn't sure if he was going to die a natural death in 20 years. He didn't know the how. He didn't know the when. But he knew 
for sure that he was going to be resurrected. He trusted in the hope of his future resurrection. Because two, someday we'll be resurrected. And we don't know how. Maybe some of us will die as martyrs. Maybe Jesus is going to come back next week. Maybe we'll die a natural death in 60 years. I don't know. We don't know the how. But we know that at that moment that we'll experience new life in a greater way than we could ever imagine, that someday we'll see Jesus face to face. That's our third principle. There's nothing better than seeing Jesus. There's nothing better than seeing Jesus. In our human finite minds, I I don't even think it's possible to comprehend the beauty and the majesty and the splendor and the the feeling that we're going to experience on the day when we see Jesus, when we behold the face of our Savior. It's going to be greater than watching the Bucks win the NBA Finals. It's going to be more incredible than watching your first child be born, more stunning than seeing your bride or your groom on your wedding day, uh, more incredible than that most beautiful sight at the National Park this summer. Beholding the face of Jesus, the one who dies for us, the one who loves us with an unconditional love that we can't even understand the depth of, the one who gladly exchanged his righteousness for our skubalos. Someday we'll see Jesus face to face. It's going to be the most incredible day of our life. And when we think about what this text means for our young adult family, I think there's some practical applications. That if we have the best small group leaders, which we do, but we don't go deep with Jesus, we've failed. If we have the best coffee in all of Wausau, which I'm biased, but I believe we do, but we don't go deep in our relationship with Jesus, we've we've failed. That if we have the greatest camp out in all of Wisconsin, which we do, but we don't go deeper with Jesus, we've failed. That if we have the best relationships and friends and accountability, we do fun things together, but we don't go deeper with Jesus, we've failed. As I look ahead to the rest of 2021, I have one word of vision for us. If you remember one thing tonight, this is it, the word deep. My prayer, my dream for our young adult family as we continue together is that we grow deep in our relationship with Jesus. Maybe your relationship with Christ is brand new and you've only known him for a little while, or maybe it's been a decades long journey. Wherever we're at to take the next step in our walk with Christ to grow deep. And I've got two practical ways that we can do that together. Here's one. For every day in the month of September, I want us to pray this prayer. Jesus, I want to know you more. You can write that down on your handout if you have a pen. Jesus, I want to know you more. Every day for the month of September. Imagine how he might answer that prayer in our life. And maybe that means putting it on a sticky note on your Bible or putting it on your bathroom mirror or writing a, a reminder on your phone or putting it in your calendar. Every day, Jesus, I want to know you more. Here's another practical idea. I think the word deep fits into our vision of where we're going this fall. That we're going to dive into probably my favorite aspect, my favorite chapters in Scripture, the Upper Room Discourse, John 13 to 17, a series called Inside the Upper Room. Now, this is one of the richest, most beautiful pictures of Jesus that we have in in all of Scripture. 
If you're not familiar with John 13 to 17, it's the last 24 hours before Jesus goes to the cross. And it's just him and his disciples. And they start in the upper room and then they transition uh, to the Mount of Olives and the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's basically this farewell address and this this commencement speech combined with this, this heart of compassion and vision for Jesus' disciples, we get an unparalleled glimpse to the person and the glory and the compassion, the, the, the humanity of Jesus in John 13 17, through 17 that we just don't see anywhere else in the gospel, in the gospels. That there's not any fluff in John 13 17. None. We're going to go deep. This is exactly what I need. This is exactly what we need. But watch out because Jesus changes everything. And there's nothing better than knowing Jesus. Let's pray. Father, what a, what a challenging text from your word from the Apostle Paul tonight. May we count our spiritual resumes. May we count our self-righteousness. May we count our past. May we count our mistakes, our sin, our, our filth. May we count all of that as scuba losses, as loss, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. May each of us make that exchange, trading our unrighteousness for Jesus' righteousness, embracing him as our Savior. And may each one of us not just know, but believe and live that there's nothing better than knowing Jesus. May we dive in deep to our relationship with Christ this fall. I pray over each person in this room, me included, that as we dive into John 13 to 17, that this can be the deepest, the richest study we've had yet in our young adult family. And that each one of us can engage and come to know you in a a more radical and a deeper way this fall. We're anxious and excited to see what you do in and through us. So we give ourselves to you. And even as we spend some time talking a little bit in our small groups at our tables tonight, um, may you guide our discussion in Jesus' name.